0: Describe yourself in three words.
1: I'd say focused, passionate, and creative.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to Global Health Lives. I'm Dilan David Kumar. I'm a professor of Global Child Health in University College London, and today I'm joined by Professor Kevin Penton, who is a public health physician and infectious disease epidemiologist. Kevin is the London Regional Director at the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, the Regional Public Health Director at NHS London, and Statutory Health Advisor to the Mayor of London. He's also the president of the United Kingdom Faculty of Public Health, which is a professional body for public health practitioners, including myself, in fact. Uh, Hi, Kevin. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Great to be here.
0: So when we spoke a few days ago, you very neatly categorized your life into five areas, the first as a child growing up in Jamaica, the second as an adolescent young adult going to medical school there the third your kind of postgraduate work uh, mostly in the UK in public health uh, working mostly on HIV the fourth your time in the United States with CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and then finally this senior executive role you have now in in the UK in multiple organizations. We'll run through all of these in turn and go through this kind of long arc of work you've had working on HIV. But I'd like to start with another thread. Um, That's that's one of leadership. You talked to me about the craft of leadership and how you've learned that craft. Can you tell me how you think about leadership and, and how your style has evolved over the years?
1: So there isn't a single definition. And part of this is that over the past 30 years that I've been practicing as a physician and being exposed to different kinds of leadership in different settings, in different countries, I've had to draw upon and perfect a range of skills to be able to do the jobs that I've been privileged to do. So, you know, my leadership journey really began uh, in in my childhood and, and adolescence. So I'm the first of four siblings. So there's always that first sibling needing to take that natural leadership role. I grew up in the church in Jamaica. So there were always opportunities for us to get involved with youth service, youth clubs, and then in high school and in university, taking on successive leadership opportunities and roles. I think one of the early lessons I learned is the vulnerability that you place yourself in as you Take on leadership roles, in part because people expect a certain standard of behavior, vision, um, engagement as a leader. Uh, And the second is learning the importance of alignment between what you're saying and what you're doing as a leader. And that gives both credibility and authenticity and trust to people who are following you. So those are really early lessons I think I learned the importance of stepping up. The importance of aligning what you're saying with what you're doing, and the importance of being that role model and setting that example. And I think part of my own journey is trying to create that authentic and unique leadership space that I operate within, right? Mm.
0: Now, like we said earlier, there there are many different types of leadership, many different ways to lead. And I guess a lot of people might be reluctant, but there isn't a, a way that you have to do it.
1: Yeah, you know, that's so right. So Growing up in the Caribbean, I thought that the models of leadership were about whether it's hyper-masculinity or whether it's being tough, whether it's being dictatorial. There were some behaviors and characteristics which were ascribed to leaders. And I remember in high school, in um, my first year of the sixth form, the two-year sixth form courses, I was not selected to be a prefect at the time, which was devastating because I was, you know, academically Gifted, doing well in school, well known, and so forth. And the selection body for prefects said, "Oh, you know, Kevin, you're probably a little bit too soft, and you wouldn't be able to handle the younger boys in the high school." And in second year of sixth form, they then they came to me and said, "You know, you're you're the kind of person that we want because you're showing a different kind of leadership. People need to see that." My first impulse was to turn it down but thankfully my mother said no 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 you know you can't <laughs> let pride get in front of you but take this experience and then use that to learn the craft of leadership and to do that and it ended up being an amazing last year in high school because i wasn't like the other guys i brought a different characteristic to leadership i began to understand my unique space as a leader. And then that helped when I went into medical school, because it meant that I was now taking on roles and getting some experience and beginning to say, actually, what is it about compassionate leadership or different kinds of leadership? What is common across all leaders, but what makes us different and unique? And how do we bring that uniqueness to our roles? And that began that journey and interest in, in leadership.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. And um, it's, it's nice to hear that you didn't change, but it then worked out. I'm always impressed by, impressed by leaders who say they don't know. I, I remember even from quite a young stage when my clinical consultants just said they don't know the answer. And th- that I always thought was very powerful. You, you don't have to tell me you know everything. It's, it's nice when you can show that.
1: Of course. Yeah. you know, And that humility is so important for people who are following you to see that you're not heroic, you're not infallible, you're not the Uh, Yoda and the font of all knowledge. And that's not what leadership is about. And in fact, I found the times when I'm most vulnerable, when I'm sharing some of my more vulnerable sides and allowing myself to be open and to be understood by people more are the times when my leadership expands, my impact grows because people are able to relate to that vulnerability and they relate to the journey behind the journey, so to speak, which are, you know we often hide or don't share as we craft our own narratives as we go through life. Mm-hmm. And so for me saying, I don't know, I need help. I need your advice. Will you mentor me? Are phrases that I've used consistently throughout my leadership journey and course. And they are phrases that I expect people who I work with to use with me as well.
0: So thank you. And you, you talked a bit about your childhood. So you, you were born in the UK because your mother was working here. She was a nurse training in Glasgow, but then returned to Jamaica as a young child where you lived there till you were a young adult. Just t- tell me more about those early days, uh, appreciating the, the privilege that you had there in particular.
1: It was so funny as a child growing up because I'd have baby pictures with me being in these thick jackets in the middle of snow in this amazing prime in the middle of a park in Glasgow. And then a month or two later, being shirtless in the farm of my grandparents. And the juxtaposition of those two images, I think it's both funny, but it also Just shares that transition that I managed and had to manage very early in my own life. And I think that maybe set up a background narrative, which was actually, I was born somewhere else and I'm growing up here now. And then one day I'd like to return to that place. So that was part of my growing up. And my earliest memories and some of my most pleasant memories are, again, growing up in this countryside with my grandparents and with my parents. And that just enabled us as kids to really explore the land, climb trees, pick fruit, deal with the farm animals, pick yam bananas and you know, the the sort of classic Jamaican farm foods that we'd have at the time. And that again juxtaposition of life in Kingston versus life in the countryside and appreciating both and again was another dichotomy because it created a love of my urban life, but a deep appreciation and love both for my grandparents, but also being in rural Jamaica and the countryside. I always take time to go back to the countryside, connect with family, to be there and to experience the roots of who I am, where I've come from, my family, my connectedness to the land in Jamaica, and being that sort of authentic Jamaican. That's a big part of me and has remained with me. And that's perhaps where that privilege comes in. That I was able to experience and have different experiences, and to have parents who facilitated those experiences and encouraged those experiences and allowed us to grow up understanding that we were more than kids growing up in urban Kingston, that family was important, that faith was important, that spending time with family members and building those bonds were important as well.
0: So you, you then went on to medical school at the University of West Indies and did very well there and you were the president of the Jamaican Medical Student Association. What was it that initially drew you to medicine and then why did you choose public health um, despite being nudged away from it at times? Mm.
1: So I was actually the class president for a number of years in medical school. <laughs> I kept being nominated to the class president the experience at that time in medical school was just fascinating, and it meant that I was able to build networks and contacts with colleagues from across the Caribbean, and it was just really a magical time. And, but the decision to do medicine was not my first decision, and growing up, I think maybe because of being born in Glasgow and that desire to return, that desire to travel and to see the world meant that very early on I wanted to be an airline pilot, and that was my big hobby growing up as a kid. I'd have scrapbooks of airlines and routes and aircraft. and um, I wouldn't call myself a plane spotter, but you know, give me a few years, I probably would have been one. And I think at that time, I also developed a love of languages because I thought if I'm going to leave Jamaica, I need to make sure that I'm speaking and I'm fluent in other languages so that I could, in my mind begin to prepare myself for this. And this all came crashing to a bit of an end when my father had a number of chats with me about the pragmatism of my dreams. So first, Kevin, we can't send you to flying school in the US because there are three other siblings. Can you think about another career that perhaps isn't as expensive that you can do in Jamaica? So I said, okay, great. I love languages. I'll do linguistics and so forth. And then I had the second daddy chat, which was, actually, you probably won't make a lot of money doing languages. Why don't you think about you know, engineering or law or, you know, medicine, which is the sort of classic middle-class West Indian thinking where you, you know, to order to to live a life, do one of the established
0: professions. Yeah, not not just West Indian thinking.
1: (laughs) 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 Um, So that second daddy chat was, again, heart-wrenching. But you know what? I give him props because at that point I said, okay, if I'm going to do one thing, I'll do medicine. I got the grades to do it, got into medical school. And then he said to me, you know what, once you have your medical degree, you can go to flying school, which I ended up doing. You can study languages, which I ended up doing. And you can have this career. So. I always know, laugh with him and tease him. And this is where that concept of privilege comes again, to have parents who are invested in my education, who are invested in getting me on that path. Gently nudging and saying, actually, here's a reality and here are some options. It's for you to choose, but this is what we would advise. And that relationship with my parents, who I dearly love and own, who are still with with me, it has been such an important part of that moulding of, you know, who I've become. And
0: Why public health? What, what did you see in public health?
1: Well, public health, uh, I think because I was coming now into medical school, sort of left field. I didn't want to do medicine from when I was a child. I didn't come in expecting to be a paediatrician or be a heart surgeon. Or I didn't have any of those preconceived ideas of what I was going mm. to be as a physician. I was really open And as it so happens, in the first week of medical school, when you're welcome to medical school and you get leaders from different specialties coming in to welcome you and to say, you're in the top zero point zero zero one percent of all students in the country and you should do cardiology or you should do X or Y. We had a group of young, dynamic public health physicians who came in and told us about what they were doing to change the world. They were working with some of the poorest communities in Jamaica they were delivering life-changing programs to these communities. They were improving child mortality, maternal mortality, helping people to live longer and healthier. And they were tackling inequalities. And that sense of justice in their medical practice was phenomenal. Phenomenal. It opened my eyes. I'm like, who are these people in public health? And why haven't I heard about them before? Uh, And that created a love, an interest, first of all, in public health. And then that develops into a love of public health. So very early on, I sort of aligned myself to them just to mentor, shadow, see what they were doing, go out with them to visit them in some of the rural clinics to see what life was like working there, which again linked back to my growing up and going back to uh, rural Jamaica. And so that interest in public health started at that time. Now... Being in medical school, it's competitive, it's long, it's hard, and I was fortunate to be able to do well in medical school, and and really ended up with an excellent medical degree, which opened lots of doors for me. I got medals and I got you know um, distinctions in many of those clinical specialties, but my commitment to public health, which began in week one, stayed with me through the five years, and at the end. I, you know, said to my colleagues, "This is what I think I'm being called to do, and I think I'm going to take the risk and do it."
0: For me, it was much later. I, d- I don't remember. I don't remember even doing public health in medical school. I, d- I don't remember it at all. Um, and it was sort of a slow realization over years afterwards. So I went into pediatrics after medical school. Maybe a little like you, there was never something I was desperate to do, and so I. I went down that path and then switched to public health some years later. Yeah,
1: But, you know, it does show the power of mentorship. And it does show that when you are passionate about your specialty, how that passion can change lives. And that, I think, influences how I am with young people coming into medical school mm-hmm. and in public health now. That, not that I'm a salesman, but that infectious optimism And that joy and that love for what I do is part of who I am, but also how I present myself to others. Because if I'm not passionate about the field that I've chosen, how can I expect anybody else to do that and to be that? Mm. Even that, that first week in medical school and the power of both your intentional and unintentional signals that you send as leaders and how that can influence lives.
0: Wonderful. So then on to this next year of your life, which was your postgraduate work. So you got this uh, scholarship to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and then did a PhD in, in University College London. And I want to pick up this thread of your work on HIV here. So you came to the UK in 1992. And this was an early time when treatments were just starting to come out. But there was a huge amount of stigma about HIV. You were leading research projects, set up a European surveillance system. Can you just tell me about the work that you did, and and also what it was like working in HIV at that time with all the fear and stigma?
1: Yeah. So I came back to the UK when I was 26. So after medical school, did three years of post-registration rotations worked in rural public health in Jamaica in part to get the experience because I knew I wanted to specialize in it and I wanted to do postgraduate work here in the UK. I was fortunate to get a full scholarship at the School of Hygiene. And at that time when I arrived and started that course in 1992, that would have been nine years after the first reported cases of an immunosuppressive disorder among gay men first diagnosed in the East and West Coast in the US. So that was in the summer of 1981. And that nine-year period for me, much of which I was going through medical school, I saw some of the first AIDS cases in Jamaica, was an era of fear, a stigma of the unknown, a growing global pandemic, the difficulties in, in communication from policymakers to the public about how to keep safe, a growing awareness of LGBT issues, the impact on gay men, on black and minority ethnic communities. And we were seeing all of that unfolding in those first nine years. So by the time I came to the UK, I had both an interest in infectious disease, epidemiology, prevention and control. And I think the experience of the HIV pandemic certainly shaped my thinking as I went through medical school and, and the choices that I subsequently made. But coming to the UK also was a chance for me to also come out as a, as a gay man, to begin to work through that relationship with my sexuality, my profession, growing as an adult and making choices so, there is a wonderful confluence of studying and perfecting my craft in public health in one of the best institutions in the world, making an active choice to stay in London and apply for jobs in London. So, the first few years of my postgrad training. I always combine my academic practice as a lecturer and doing research with clinical practice in public health. And and I was able to get my first clinical academic job, which was as a clinical lecturer in HIV epidemiology with Professor Anne Johnson at UCL. And that really opened my eyes on the world of HIV and STI prevention research, and because Professor Ann Johnson was one of the co-PIs on the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, it enabled me to get a deep grounding in both epidemiological methods, behavioral surveillance, and sexual behavioral research. And that really helped to ensure that as I was training and developing my skills as a public health specialist and as an epidemiologist, that I was also contributing to the HIV response here in the UK and some of the early work that I did in the 90s I think really set the foundation for HIV policy and so we did some of the first studies in black gay men needs assessment with black gay men working with one of our local community organizations at the time did a lot of community participatory research with black African communities to understand the impact of the pandemic and the epidemic in sub-saharan Africa and its connection to the UK epidemic of HIV and its disproportionate impact on Black African communities. And I'll work with MSM, Men Who Have Sex With Men, both on behavioral surveillance, looking at prevention interventions, combination prevention, partner notification, a range of studies also ensured that I was able to contribute to sexual health policy at that time. The defining feature of my career, which is doing good work and understanding the craft of an academic, but also being involved in implementation and delivery, scaling up of programs and engaging communities in that response.
0: Thank you. So then from there, you moved to the United States and you became the director of the National Center for HIV, and AIDS, viral hepatitis, STDs and TB prevention. And that was at the age of 36. So taking this kind of work that you were doing in the UK to the US, can you tell me how you, how you managed that and how that developed?
1: The opportunity to go to the US was completely fortuitous. My partner at the time was offered a job in the US I wanted to go over to get a little bit of experience and I contacted my colleagues at the CDC and said, listen, you know, I'm coming over. Can I volunteer? Can I spend some time doing some work with you just to learn and see what you guys are doing? And thankfully at the time, they just said, listen, if you're coming over to the US, come to Atlanta, we'd love to have you here. And they took me on board as the chief of the US syphilis elimination effort, which was the job I did in the first year in the US. And then after that first year, colleagues said, you know, there's this vacancy to be the head of HIV, STD, and TB prevention f- at the CDC. You should really put your hat into the ring because you're doing great work. And for a number of reasons, I thought, no, I'm too young, not the right time, etc. But in the end, I did, and I was appointed. And that was just a magical time of being one of the 12 national directors at the CDC. The CDC are different centers which focus on infectious and chronic diseases. So being the head of the largest center at the CDC and being involved at a very dynamic time where I started under the Bush administration and then also worked with the Obama administration and being able to lead the HIV epidemic response in the U.S. to really respond to massive changes in STI epidemiology, helping to support TB elimination efforts. And of course, over the years, added on new departments to my group, including adolescent health and hepatitis prevention. So that time in the US, I think, I look back, it was in total 10 years. It was a time of me perfecting that craft as an HIV and STI epidemiologist, but also learning about the delivery of large-scale programs for the U.S. and globally, leading large and complex organizations. My team, my organization was 2,500 people at its peak, six massive divisions at the CDC, billions of dollars coming through the organization and being supported by a strong executive and management team, but doing innovative work, working with Congress Mm -hmm. and working with really powerful advocacy and community organizations from across the U.S., So those experiences I would never have had here in the UK, both in terms of size and scale and complexity. But I've had that at that phase in my career, I think was a real blessing because it further encouraged me on this leadership journey that I have been on. It exposed me to new ways of thinking. The rigor that CDC brings to integrating science and evidence into program and practice is part of what I do on a day-to-day basis. And the ability to have all of the components of a public health agency under my leadership from communications to research to surveillance to um, community outreach and engagement meant that I was able to build competences in all of those areas in order to lead the organization that I had. So the CDC experience, I look back with, Joy, trepidation. I can't believe that I had this experience at that phase in my career, but incredibly thankful for the trust that was placed in me, the relationships that I built, the colleagues that I developed, and of course the innovative programs that we were able to to run at that time.
0: Was it very different working under Bush and then Obama under the two?
1: One of the other lessons that I learned working at the U.S. was that intersection between politics and policy.
0: And when
1: there is administration change in the U.S., you often have heads of agencies which are appointed by the new administration. And for some agencies, even directors change so that there's an alignment between the new administration and the people leading the the federal agencies. In the transition between the Bush administration and the Obama administration of the 13 center directors that were there at the time, I believe that there were only three or four of us that were invited to continue with the Obama administration. So there was a lot of change. And part of that was because I think I had, I hope, built such a great relationship with our stakeholders, known in Congress, done innovative work under the Bush administration, even when policy was, you'll remember, abstinence until marriage, Uh, It was not investing or not prioritizing, sorry, the domestic epidemic, but really investing in the global pandemic response and the creation of PEPFAR. And a very different ethos when it came to dealing with some of the sensitive issues that you need to deal with when it comes to responding to HIV and, and STIs, sexual health, sexual risk behaviors, marginalized communities. The Obama administration certainly came in with a very different focus, which was a more balanced portfolio of domestic and global work. I was involved in the development of the first U.S. national aid strategy, and I was able to really take to scale a lot of the innovations that we had put in place in our center. So, for example, a focus on the social determinants of health and health equity, really pushing on collaboration and integration across programs so to develop a syndemic approach really building up or asset-based community development work and community mobilization as part of the effective response to these infectious diseases so you know the U.S. experience reinforced what I had always known, that, you know, you have to work with the administration and power. You have to find the win-win opportunities and you have to be prepared. Because when the opportunities come, either by change of administration or politician, to be ready on the get-go to say, I know what you're trying to achieve. And here are things that I can do to help you to achieve it are one of the tools that I've used in being proactive and being focused in helping to get things done. So this concept of being prepared, right, always being ready and looking for those political opportunities, it's a real thing for us in public health. At any given time, we're working on pushing forward on multiple agendas on multiple fronts. And depending on the administration, you may have success in some areas. And in other areas, you may have to downweight or stop doing for a while, Mm. despite the fact that you know that it's really important for the communities that you're serving. So at no point in my practice have I felt the need to be doing everything at every time with all administrations, because that's not how you build trust relationships, and that's not how you uh, get things done effectively. But understanding where there's a middle ground where there are win-win opportunities is really critical. And oftentimes people want to achieve the same things, but often through different routes and being able to use one's technical expertise, bring the evidence, use your experience to say, actually, I know what you're trying to achieve. Here's how you can do it with the least harm or most effectively. And here's my advice is exactly the place you want to be in, right? Providing advice providing counsel and then allowing the politicians to be able to make the decisions but recognizing that your role is not the only one and your voice is not the only one so there's also an aspect of humility in recognizing how you use your voice and how you put forward your arguments and your ability to be agile and to be responsive and to be resilient in order to ensure that even if your advice isn't taken and if a direction of travel is selected that you'll be able to push forward on agendas. So keeping the show moving forward, even when things are changing, even if the way in which you intended to do it might be different, I think is one of the skills that public health practitioners are able to bring.
0: Thank you. That that moves nicely onto this final era of your life, um, moving back to the UK. Um, you told me about how excited you are in this Uh, era and you can do things that matter to you, this era of self-actualization. Can can you tell me what that is and, and how this relates to the work that you're doing?
1: So after nearly 10 years in the US, I had a chance to return to the UK because with the creation of Public Health England, and they were looking to recruit their national directors. And I wanted to do a couple of things. First of all, I wanted to return to the UK after having spent this time away in the US. And because I had worked at such a senior level in HIV prevention, research, control, for so many years, by that time 20 years, and had done the best job in the world being the center director at the CDC. I felt actually either I was going to go to WHO and UNAIDS to work uh, to continue that trajectory, or I was going to maybe use this mid career opportunity to add new competences to my skill set, which would be non communicable disease prevention and control. And to use the experience and the expertise that I've developed as an infectious disease epidemiologist to bring that rigor to um, the national NCD prevention portfolio at, at Public Health England. So I was really fortunate to be appointed the Health and Wellbeing Director for PhE. I did that job for five years. And that process of actualization then I think came to its fore. In part because in my mid-40s and you know, I had now done all these amazing jobs. I felt I had less to prove. And and for me, as a black male overseas trained physician working in the UK, we often feel and have that chip on our shoulders that, A, your bandwidth in making mistakes is not very wide, (laughs) and B, there are very few opportunities for you as a minority physician. And so you're constantly on guard, trying to prove yourself, trying not to make mistakes, trying to be as best as you can. And that's wearing, and that's tough. And I think... My time in PHE, being able to make that transition back to the UK and to be able to do that well and to learn from colleagues and to make a difference, provided me with perhaps a sense of peace and calm in knowing that it's okay, you're there now, you've developed those skills, you've developed those competences, and you can now begin to use them creatively. You can now begin to not be defined by a job or a position. But you begin to do things which are meaningful, which align with my values, my view of what I want to be in this world, and to use those skill sets in new and creative and impactful ways. So after five years of being a national director, I stood down from that to take a job right at the front line of public health practice, to go back to one of the most deprived boroughs in London to work as an executive director in a council, to really think about public health practice at a grassroots level and to think about how do I bring that expertise that I have to solve wicked problems at a local level. And then that unlocked loads of new opportunities to work with local government leadership um, new networks and thinking about you know, place shaping, working with architects, regeneration experts from across the UK and across Europe because we we're doing such exciting work in local government and to have that public health specialist bringing evidence, well-being and health into the centre of place shaping that was exciting and new. And so being able to use those skills and to allow myself the freedom now And the confidence to to let go of that control that I had exerted for so long in my career perhaps has led to this latest era of my life, which is one of completely now being aligned with the work that I'm doing, the privilege of serving, of both as the Regional Director for London, which I began just before the pandemic, but also to be the President of the Faculty of Public Health and to have this amazing portfolio career where on any given day, I am leading, I'm following, I'm learning, I'm teaching, I'm guiding, I'm being guided and understanding and enjoying this place and this space. But knowing at the core of this all is that I'm continuing to make that difference in people's lives, which takes me right back to that second daddy conversation that I had about how do I make those difference and how do I use the skills that I've been given and the talents that I've been given to do the best
0: Thank you. My last question, which is about creativity. You to- told me last time about your creative pursuits. You paint, do fashion design, you're into music and DJing, learning languages. First time I'm amazed that you can do all those things as well as the other jobs. But tell me a little bit about this exploring of creativity in different ways and, and what you personally gain from that.
1: So... On all of my personality assessments, and I've had a few (laughs) over my three decades of practice, one of the, a number of strong characteristics that come out in almost every leadership profile that I do. And that is my love of learning. But that love of learning is not just for public health. It's about learning new things. You know, every year I commit to doing and learning three things. I commit to learning something new in my craft, so something technical in public health, so public health. Second, I commit to some leadership training and development. And the third thing I do every year is commit to learning something new and fun. And it's in doing that that over many years I've been able to build this collection of new skills and talents which are fun. So one year I did conversational French. Currently, my partner's German, so I'm doing a little bit of German on the side, not much. Please don't test me. Other years, I've done courses in mixology. I've done courses in music in order just to have that break from the intensity of the day job, but to satisfy that natural inquisitiveness, which I think I have, and that natural openness to learning and thinking about how do you apply this to the work that you do. So on a day-to-day basis, I think that creativity manifests itself in my work. I love solving problems. I love bringing new solutions to problems. I am able to operate liminally, in other words, on the margin of public health practice where public health intersects with other professions and other specialties, and to create connections between different specialties and connections. Creativity of learning from others, the musicians and dancers, architects, has been a really interesting part of my more recent practice.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, to Thank you, Kevin. Hearing about all the eras of your life has been fascinating. When so much of life is competitive, it's depressing. I, I love that you're willing to put yourself out there and just to foreground things like compassion and empathy, and, and that these are also the components of success. So thank you very much for, for joining me today.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you to my guest Kevin Fenton. The episode was produced by Shruti Mahadevan and myself, with editing by Sam Gomberg. The theme song is Paper Stars by Liam Maiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.